Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... Stephanie Piñate. Thank you for joining me again. You've been on here already, but uh, I wanted to continue my just tirade and fury about uh, the U.S. immigration system and not to kind of... It's not to say that, like, I'm just going to, like, shit all over it, but also I'm just sort of pointing out how these sort of systemic failures contribute to a great deal of suffering and maybe even some sort of economic loss for the U.S. government and the rest of the U.S. economy. So this is something that's worth discussing with someone who has a slightly different immigration experience from myself, which is that you yourself were born in the U.S., but you're dealing with your parents' immigration experience. And so I guess, first of all, tell me about that, your experience as the child of immigrants and uh, sort of being a a first-generation American for your family. Yeah. Um, well, I am here to completely shit on the entire system. <laughs> um, my experience as a first gen has been, I mean, I don't really know how to, I feel like when someone asks me that, there's not like a word to describe it. It's just really, it's taxing for everyone involved. Um, I I honestly don't know. I, have we talked about like why my parents actually mig- migrated here? Not on the podcast. <laughs> Oh, okay. My parents fled during the Civil War in the 90s. Um, I think it, uh, my history, it's, my history is a little rough, but um, the Civil War was like 80s, 90s. was predominantly in the 90s in Salvador um, through U.S. sanctions, which is a really common theme in a lot of countries who have a lot of refugees. Um, but my, my dad's story is a little bit I've never actually sat down and talked to him about it. So there's a lot of like gaps in it, but he migrated here when he was really young. My grandma used to work in sweatshops, um, sewing clothes. And he was brought here at a really early age. um, And he was able to get some kind of visa through that. Um, My dad was born in 69, so I'm not sure when that happened, but he was able to go back to El Salvador and come back. And he did that pretty often. Um, And one of his trips back to El Salvador is when he met my mom and they started dating. My mom became pregnant at the age of 19 with my older brother um, in a very conservative Catholic household. So she was kicked out by my grandma and she was like, well, I guess this is the time for me to, you know, finally like move to the United States with some guy I barely know in a country don't know anything about in a language I don't speak. So she came by foot, um, like she walked through the deserts, she slept in the deserts. And in Spanish, I believe they're called coyotes, um, which I, I think is coyotes in English, um, which are basically like the people who lead um, immigrants through like the trails because they know the trails. And it's an expensive process. Um, recently, the last person we were, we did that with, um, cause we have a lot of family that we are able to help pay for. This is a really long, this is really long, no, it's but, fine. this is your story, <laughs> but 
last time we brought someone over, it was three thirteen thousand per person to do that. Um, and you know, most people don't have thirteen thousand like in their bank savings accounts for that stuff. And my family's always been really adamant about like we are a family and we all care for another. So, you know, like here's $2,000 or here's, you know, what I have. Um, pay me when you can, whatever whatever you can do. Um, and I would like to note that, that they give you a price per person, which is really messed up. Um, and then they can be like, well, I, I want more money. You owe me 2000 more or we're going to leave your family here for like ice, basically. Um, and you're, you, you have to come up with like that $2,000 or your family is like toast, but. Um, back then it was a lot cheaper. Um, not, I would, I don't, I wouldn't say it's affordable cause it wasn't, um, but it was more affordable than it is now. And, um, my dad brought her that way and I've never actually spoken about my older brother, but through some people, um, they forged a passport and they snuck him, um, like in a car across the border. Um, and he was really young. I think he was either like four or six. Um, so he is a, he is an immigrant who went through, he didn't really go through the system cause he didn't have to apply for DACA. He didn't go through, he didn't go to college, but he has married a white woman. And that was a, that was a stressful process for both of them. And, um, of course, especially for him cause he got stranded in El Salvador cause his, Lawyer said he did not need a piece of paper that he did need. And when he went to um, El Salvador Customs, or I don't know what they're called, but we'll just call them that. Um, they were like, well, you need that. So we can't help you. So we had to get that over to him. Um, and it was, I think it was um, some celebration. I can't remember what it was. So they were closed for like two weeks to celebrate um, the festivities. So he had, he was delayed by two weeks and then just the whole thing, like another two weeks, so he was there for a month longer than he anticipated. Um, that was his experience. But other than that, it's been pretty easy on him. And then, um, like I said, both of my parents are immigrants. My mom, um, she has her residency now. Um, I was able to vouch for her. Um, through that process once I turned 21 and I'm 23 now. Um, but my dad's is a completely different story. And I think it's going to be a family thing because my dad got into some trouble with the law when he was a lot younger. Um, they basically revoked his, I think it was residency. Um, I don't think it was a citizenship. I think it was his residency. Um, they revoked it. And basically he is both a, well, my mom isn't anymore, but growing up with her, my parents are technically illegal and like not in the system and stuff like that. My mom differed a little bit in that, I think in the early 2000s, I don't remember what president, but there was a president that passed um, or that authorized work visas. And she had a, I think it's TPS, a work TPS. So she was able to work. Um, I have a lot of family that is illegal and you know, my family has always been really hardworking and has always, like, the reason they came here was um, it's expensive to be in El Salvador. They have the same prices on food, on everything that they do, that we do here, but they get paid $5 a day. So that's like a gallon of carton or a gallon of carton, a gallon of milk, um, which is like not sustainable. So most of my family came over here, um, honestly, to make money and to be able to like, survive. Um, and a lot of my family right now, uh, has found ways through the system, through the good hearts of 
in the rare hearts of employers to be able to work as illegals. Um, and, you know, we find ways to work under the table too. But that was a really long way of saying it's stressful. <laughs> yeah. Well, the your story and your family story uh, is one, I, I will say that I greatly empathize and I'm sorry that you and your family have to go through all of that. But like your story kind of contains it all, like all the different ways in which you can sort of navigate this thing. And so something that is worth talking about, and I, I don't know if it's just my brain space lately, but I've I've just been thinking in like greater systemic points of view. And so like, why does someone need to migrate from a country? Why does someone uh, need to migrate to another country legally or illegally? What sort of, what causes someone to break the law? Why would they have to go through these avenues? Why would they decide to, you know, screw up their life per se by trying to make it into the U.S. illegally. And so these are the sorts of things that people don't necessarily have to experience if they're born here or if they have never known anyone that has had to go through this. And so these are the sorts of things that get left out in discussions of immigration policy and the human beings that are going through these things. Instead, the immigrant and usually the undocumented or illegal immigrant is reduced to just that, a number that is a crime and therefore no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I can answer both of those really quickly too. Um, Getting a visa to come work here is incredibly difficult and it's expensive. Um, even a work, like just a temporary visa to visit for like a week or two is so incredibly difficult. I, my grandma, we have filed for her so many times and God bless her heart. They know her by name at the uh, El Salvador Customs, but it's just, it's, there's so many hoops you have to jump through for that. Um, and illegally, um, I'm not going to say it's easier because it's not. Um, I've had family detained by ICE. I've had people detained at borders of country, of, um, sorry, of Mexico, um, like entering Mexico and also just exiting Mexico. Um, but the sad thing is that that is more um, reasonable and like more possible than it is to get like an authorized piece of paper that says, this country gives you permission to leave for X amount of time. Um, and to give you like a story of like why people leave my mom, I hear her talk about this all the time. She, when she was in school, she would walk to school um, as a kid and see dead bodies on the ground. And, you know, at that age, she kind of understood what was going on, but they played a game of like, all her and her cousins of like, who can run the fastest across this, these bodies? Cause it's scary. Um, so let's run and see who gets to school first and whoever wins gets a pan dulce or you can have my Coke or whatever. When I think about just people who obviously don't understand the whole backstory and like the process and then like post, um, immigration or post migration of immigrants, it's so hard because it, they, they lack so much understanding and I, I don't think 
and I'm, I'm going to be honest and say all my family that has to has had to migrate is incredibly is way more stronger than those people um and I think they can do more than those people um because they go through so much it's not you don't just wake up one day and you're like yeah I'm gonna spend three weeks in the desert in 100 degree weather so I can be debated on Facebook of like whether or not I deserve to be here that's you know it's not it's it's everybody's right to be wherever they want to be in regards to land or cultures or anything like that but you know it gets complicated yeah <laughs> it it is incredibly complicated because I mean obviously there's there is the counterpoint of like there's only so many people that like supposedly a country can handle so like if I don't know seven million people in the United States decided to migrate into Canada. That is a a thing that their systems cannot handle. And we have to sort of navigate ways in which we can solve these problems in a pragmatic way. And sometimes uh, people get left behind, people get abused, and people get ignored by the systems in some ways trying their best to solve those problems, but in other ways, the systems are deliberately making decisions that cause harm or that limit people's ability to obtain legal status or whatever it might be. Uh, actually, as you were telling the story of your parents and your family, I was actually thinking that I don't think I've actually said specifically how my family actually like came into the U.S. I've always just stated that like I came to the U.S. in 2001. But like, so we came to the U.S. on a visitor visa and we overstayed that visitor visa. And so like we flew into the U.S. We didn't like, you know, cross any rivers or go through the desert. And, you know, and like I explained in in the previous episode is that my experience is extremely privileged. Like the fact that I got to fly into the U.S. and have some form of legal status for a little bit. Bougie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm the bougiest of the migrants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like the the stuff that I had to like go through as a child is nothing. We just like got on a plane, gathered the things. And then like, as far as I knew, it was like, Oh, like we're going. Okay, cool. I'm just doing, I'm just following my family around and then just, Oh, we're in a different country. And then, Oh, I'm getting enrolled in school. And oh, like, so was, I was just a bystander and all of these things. I didn't get to choose any of those things that happened to me but like the the fact of the matter is is that that's one of the simplest ways of sort of becoming an illegal immigrant you just come here as a visitor and then you continue visiting forever <laughs> yeah i have a um our compadre um it's basically godparent of my brother yeah the godparent of my brother he 
has been able to get work visas pretty well. I don't know how. Uh, that's not to say that he doesn't work. I mean, like, I, I generally just don't know the process to get that um, or how he, what he was able to do to get it. Um, but he's done that several times. And every time he's done it, he literally does work. That's like all he does when he's here is work. And he works about two jobs, about 60 hours a week when he's here. Um, just so he can take money back to his family. But the fear in that is he goes back when he's supposed to. And then sometimes he'll overstay. Um, and the fear then is that you will be like detained in ICE because they can deport you to them. Because the laws of that are really gray and up for interpretation, which is scary. But yeah, I know a lot of people from Venezuela too. My dad has a lot of Venezuelan friends. Um, I live and grew up in Norman and there's a bunch of them in Norman and more. Um, and a lot of them came on work visas too with everything going on there. The interesting sort of nice, I guess, or like the silver lining that comes through this is that people find community in the places where lots of us gather. And so we get to share in this experience, this very strange experience uh, of coming to a country and being in some sort of strange status with the with the government. And so there, as far as my like bougie experience goes, it is that like there has always just been this like underlying paranoia of if I am too forward-facing or in the spotlight or anything, I will be seen, I will be reported, I will be deported. Like, And so that's a, the, that's a systemic fear that I've grown up with and I've lived with that paranoia all my life. And so we're creating sort of generations and entire demographics of people that are incredibly paranoid and don't trust uh, authority, <laughs> which, well, I mean, we like don't trust authority in general <laughs> anyways, but go ahead. <laughs> the punk in me is screaming. <laughs> but no, yeah, that's a really, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is something I, I don't know if it was just me or if it was my brothers too. Um, they never really expressed this, but I always had the fear that my parents would get deported. Um, there's never a single day in elementary school, elementary school, and I'm I'm not exaggerating because I, I remember distinct moments of having this thought. Um, but I would have genuine fears that when I walked home, my parents wouldn't be there. I didn't walk home by myself, but like when I got home, when like my parents picked me up or I often had, I had a large support of um, uncles and aunts helping my parents out. And, you know, them helping them now. But I had other people pick me up, like my aunts and my uncles. And it was really weird. It was really real to feel that, like, if I got home, my parents might not be there. Or if I got a call in the office at school about, like, changes in pickups or whatever, because my mom had to stay at work or, you know, whatever reason it was. And somebody else was going to pick me up. The first thing that I would think is, did my parents get deported? Um, you know, what happened and something that we also experienced in the community um, is we are through, I don't know how people find this out, but like sometimes people will be like, ICE is on X and Y street and like they are. So, you know, you obviously avoid that street. Um, 
you avoid it because a lot of immigrants don't have driver's license, but they have to drive to work. And, you know, I think that experience is one that you understand with everything going on recently with your driver's license and everything. But it's a really big fear. And there was like a time when I was able to drive or it was bad um, down here in Norman. I was just driving my mom around because she was too scared to drive. And it's it's a big fear. I mean, I don't, I spent a lot of time just thinking I was overreacting or that like, um, yeah, that I was just overreacting. But like in the reality is like white people or people of status, um, we say in Spanish, it's translates to status. So, so you just have like, um, a citizenship, but, um, if you were born here and don't have to worry about that stuff, that's, that's like genuine stuff that you don't have to experience, but other kids do. Um, and it made me bitter for a long time. And honestly, like I'm 23 years old and I'm still trying to undo all that bitterness against like people with, and I have my, you know, I have my citizenship cause I was naturalized here, but it's still something I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's something I like, it's a very touchy thing, but for me, but it's also just like other people don't have to experience it. And the fear, the fear that you feel is very real. Yeah. Uh, Getting to, I guess, more of the, like, systemic discussions in it, uh, I recently read uh, this great, awesome, terrible, awful book called uh, Hitler's American Model, which is... You read the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, wow. okay. it's actually, so, uh, fun fact, hey, here's something about systems that you can trust, which is libraries, and uh, you can uh, sign, like, if you have a library card... There's this app called Hoopla, and you can get ebooks and audiobooks and music as well and movies. And if you have a library card, you can sign up through Hoopla and you can get like they have a pretty vast library of things. And uh, hey, Hitler's American model is in that library. So, yeah, every once in a while, you know, someone will tell me a book and I'll check if it's on Hoopla. And a lot of times it is. So, uh, yeah, check that out. But <laughs> so like you don't have to pay for an Audible subscription. Isn't that great? Uh, <laughs> But like, so yeah, I, I listened to the audiobook of Hitler's American Model, and basically it describes how the like Nazi regime, Nazi Germany in the precursors to when they actually took full control over Germany and as they were developing their legal systems to exclude a specific population of theirs and make them second class or even non-citizens in their eyes systemically in a legal way, they looked to the United States and how great they were doing it at the time. And they were definitely inspired by the U.S. So, you know, it's good to know that America, you know, with Charlottesville and the uh, January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, uh, America has a strong tradition of inspiring Nazis. So <laughs> that happened the day after my birthday. Happy birthday stuff. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, fun story with that. I was actually through a weird set of circumstances. I was in a gun store in Bethany. Oh, Yes, you had like put in the, Discord. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The day of, and it was one of the strangest, like, most tense 
feelings that yeah anyways <laughs> god yeah I, I think i think anyone in oklahoma who's not white is like oh yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. going back to the nazi book uh america likes to inspire nazis as much as they might like to ignore that fact about themselves and so eugenicists love the United States. And so like the book was separated into two parts. One was immigration policy and the other was uh, miscegenation or like blood law policies. And so since we're talking about immigration, I'll talk about the immigration policies. So going as far back to the um, Naturalization Act of 1790 in the U.S., it declared that only people of white descent were eligible for naturalization. Then there's the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. They uh, prohibited all immigration of Chinese laborers. And then the Immigration Act of 1917, it restricted immigration by imposing literacy tests on immigrants, creating categories of inadmissible persons and barring immigration from just the whole Asia-Pacific zone. So uh, categories of inadmissible persons, what does that mean? Like uh, people who have some sort of like mental disorders or disabilities or anything. So like, nope, not you in the U.S. And then the Immigration Act of 1924, it got rid of the Asian immigration ban and instead set a quota of 165,000 people for countries outside of the Western Hemisphere. And so it's like, okay, we're being slightly less racist. Um, and so, like, Hitler praised the U.S.'s immigration policy, uh, and they were, like, the Nazis were inspired by the U.S.'s race law. Eugenicists love the U.S., <laughs> Yeah, I was listening to the podcast um, that you sent over, which uh, I think I told you, I read parts of that um, book, the Nazi book, because I had a really, I didn't realize at the time, but I had a really badass professor at OU from a U.S. history class. Um, And she had us read like boarding school season, which is basically letters of Native Americans who were stripped from their families, put in boarding schools and, um, sorry, um, the ones, I don't remember if the book contains letters from the um, ones that went missing or the kids that just were like, who went through the entire process and then, you know, got out. Um, we read that and we read excerpts of the Nazi book. Um, yeah. And the podcast you mentioned opens up with even the Nazis were like, what the U.S. is doing is way worse than what we're doing because they were ending they were basically killing people, but the U.S. was somehow erasing the roots. Well, not somehow. The U.S. was erasing the roots of the people they were um, enslaving, which I was, which was like something that we talked about in that class too. And I was like, that that class day is so clear in my head, and I think about like I think about that all the time too. And it's like we are somehow worse than the Nazis. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's there's this distinction between uh, sort of physical, like, murderous genocide and cultural genocide. And so the way that the Nazis were sort of, like, being humane in a way in that they're not doing this sort of, like, 
stripping of entire humanity and forcing people to like live in a society that hates them. They're instead just murdering them systematically. Instead, in the U.S., they're like, no, we're going to kidnap you from your families and put you in these boarding schools and beat you if you speak your original language. And we're going to enslave your people. We're going to uh, make sure that they have no way into the actual system and systematically make sure that you are completely second class citizens. And that is a different kind of genocide, which is complete cultural genocide. We the U.S. genocided the Native Americans, genocided African-Americans, and uh, in the same way, like, this is something that needs to be discussed more often, but, like, Hispanic, Latino people are Native Americans. And so even as far back as, like, Columbus's time, we were also genocided. And so we're this strange in-between where we're mongrels according to this uh nazi book we're mongrels as far as like we are a mixture of native americans and uh mostly spaniards and so like the the his that's why like on like the census and whatever other forms that you're filling out ethnicity is separate from race because Hispanic is like somewhere in between and it's like I don't want to put white so like yeah, we should have a you should have a podcast where we just talk about Latinidad because it's it's messy and you know it's intentionally messy because the foundation that it's like the foundation that it's um like founded on is just it's stupid <laughs> for lack of better terms it's stupid and our our history was erased and so, and and the same goes for African Americans who don't have an experience outside of whenever they were, like their ancestors were put on a boat and anything from before then was completely erased from them. And so, yeah, the, it's one thing to just be like murdered by a system that hates you. It's another thing to be forced to live in the system that hates you. So... <laughs> But, okay, so getting to U.S. as it is now, uh, like, all these things are awful. But, like, you know, you could say, oh, well, we're not like that anymore. We're, we've, you know, since 1960s, we, you know, we had the civil rights movement and we're done. Racism is over. Racism uh, <laughs> is cured. We're cured. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, like I said before, eugenicists love the U.S. And we, for whoever is listening that doesn't know the definition of eugenics, I put it in my notes here, which is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. So it's like, yeah, don't like if you want your child to have blue eyes, you want both of the parents to have blue eyes, which is like, you know, you can do that with like dogs and horses and stuff but if you like then you're doing it with a a human being that has to like live and exist and so like no don't like you have to murder the people that are mentally handicapped or murder the people who are dark-skinned or murder the people who have any sort of traits that we don't like or we have to make sure that they do not reproduce that's how eugenics works it's great isn't it <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of disability activists um, and advocates that I follow, like 
on all my social platforms that eugenics is still a very strong conversation in within their community. Um, disabled people face so much medical, psychological, and just like everyday effects of eugenics directly and indirectly. And it's, it's, it's fucked up. <laughs> There's no other way to say it than it's fucked up and it's still very prevalent. Um, and just how we think about things too. And there's a lot of undoing that we have to do that we don't realize stems from eugenics. Yeah. And at least something good that might come out of like the conversation, the greater zeitgeist of, I guess, the 2010s and onward is that we're sort of as a generation moving forward, we're sort of acknowledging the existence of spectrums rather than like binary classifications or even just specific boxes. But like everyone is on some sort of spectrum. Everyone is in some ways like, yeah, there's a spectrum of like how depressed you are or how mentally ill you might be or like just mental health in general and all of these sorts of things to show that like, even just the the notion of eugenics is based on incomplete information because like everyone is a little bit of something and everyone has a little bit of something because human beings are a wide array of people and we're not just boxes to be ticked, but we are, you know, fully, completely variable people. Absolutely. I don't know if you have a response to that, but yeah. <laughs> but, no, I don't. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes I wish you would just read affirmations to me. Like, I'll, I'll just give you a list of affirmations that my therapist gives and you'll just read them to me. And I'm like, yes, this is so true. <laughs> uh, well, sure. Uh, I will try to balance those out with the other, like, terrible things that I keep listing about, like, how the U.S. inspires Nazis. But... Uh, <laughs> But anyways, how uh, the immigration policy still applies to now is that there's still remnants of eugenics in the current U.S. immigration law, like in Form I-693, the Report of Medical Examination and Vaccination Record. Uh, like, yeah, sure, you don't want to bring infectious diseases into the U.S. That's understandable, although as if the people of the U.S. actually cared about infectious diseases, uh, as is evidenced by— uh, uh, you, you said know, it. Yeah, like the vaguely gestures and everything. Yeah, the fact that only like 50 percent of Oklahomans are vaccinated. Uh. Yeah, so, okay, but like, you know, checking for vaccines is cool and understandable because we want to make sure that diseases that are— very treatable are treated and, you know, eradicated it, with this wonderful invention that is the vaccine. But, you know, the difference is like they check for specific diseases in this medical exam that I had to, you know, be a part of and like everyone that tries to apply for a permanent residence in the U.S. Can we talk about how expensive that was too? Oh, yeah. It, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's so expensive. I think the physical examination, I think we paid 250 just, for, it was either 250 or 500. I don't remember, but it was so ridiculous. And I, I mean, I, I don't have any words about how ridiculous it was. We were able to get some of them at our local health department, which are like, like libraries are so revolutionary. Um, my mom was able to get like half of her vaccines that she needed um, and like half of the exams she needed there for free and we're insured, but 
it was just, oh my gosh, it's so ridiculous. Um, and you, they, did they give you a list too of like three, there's like three in all of like Oklahoma city metro area of certified, they're certified to do that specific exam. And they just ask you like, are you hurting anywhere? Are you mentally well? Which is super vague. At least that's what our experience was. Um, and my mom was like, yeah, I feel fine. Sometimes I get headaches. And the doctor was like, okay. And we just walked out. <laughs> It's yeah, stupid. I, I think I remember uh, like one of the questions on the list is, um, have you ever like thought about dying or like killing yourself? And I was like, uh, when I was a teenager, but like, who doesn't? And like the, the, the woman doing the exam was like, oh, yeah, totally. She's just like, you know, moved on. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think the doctors themselves kind of see through a lot of like the bullshit of the system and the procedure oh this wasn't a procedure but you know what I mean um the doctor we had was super chill and I kid you not I was like so I was like tearing up because she was just going on like she went on a five minute non-stop rant where she just talked about how like at the time their their 45th president was still the president 45th 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 president and and she was just like going off on how terrible he is and how stupid he's treating like all of the immigrants and she's been getting an influx of immigrants like throughout the past that term of his uh, presidency because a lot of people were scared yeah yeah so they they check for like weird nonsense so like they ask about syphilis gonorrhea tuberculosis leprosy uh mental disorders uh, and drug abuse, to name some of them. Uh, by the way, uh, cannabis and CBD are considered inadmissible and must be sustain must be in sustained remission in order to be classified as Class B or whatever. So it's like, even though weed is legal in many states, it's still like, well, because you have marijuana in your system, when we did this medical exam. Like, we won't let you in the country, even though it's legal here. <laughs> yeah, my mom tested positive for tuberculosis. She didn't have it, but she tested positive. So she had to pay like a $50, $75 fee to be retested for like they had to. I can't remember if they had to do x-rays or not, but it was, we had to, no, it was a hundred dollars. That's what we had. It was a hundred dollar fee to get retested just to make sure she didn't have tuberculosis which tuberculosis at the time was actually going around here in Norman. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually a, a funny thing because there is a a vaccine that is given in different countries that actually like has tuberculosis or whatever. And so like a certain test that they do for tuberculosis and people who have had that vaccine, it will show positive in that so everyone who they check for tuberculosis ha has to also get a chest x-ray to show that they do not have active tuberculosis and so it's like this the scar that i have on my arm here is like from venezuela is like yeah i had vaccines when i was a child and that's what like so yeah i had to have do that same scar yeah i had to do that uh chest x-ray because my test for tuberculosis came back so yeah so something else to note is that like the things that they check for syphilis and gonorrhea like so <laughs> we can't let you 
fuck in the United States. <laughs> because you're going to bring your terrible third world diseases. Which, like, syphilis, the U.S. actually gave black men syphilis and then refused to treat them. This is like an actual fucking thing that happened. And so it's like, why are you keeping us out of the country for like a thing that you actually like actively gave actual U.S. citizens? Deadass. I was I, my 21st birthday. I was in the lawyer's office trying to figure out what we had to do. And she gave us like the list of um, vaccines you need. And I just like looked at her and I looked at my mom and I just started crying because I was like, so my mom can't be sick, but every other stupid American can. And she looked me dead in the eye, tears running down my face. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> in tears. I was so frustrated. And I was like, that's not... I don't, I don't know how to tell you my mom's been here for like 30,000 years and it, she would have given it to someone if this were the case. Like, why does it matter now? You know, my mom's married. She wouldn't have done that, but you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, so these are the things that like we still have to do. I still had to do this uh, in 2019 and people are still having to do this medical exam. And so it's. Not to say that, like, again, checking for vaccines is not necessarily a bad thing. We don't want to bring other infectious diseases. There are infectious diseases that occur in specific places throughout the world, and that makes sense. But, like, so the place that I actually got my medical exam from is actually a place that specializes – it's in Edmond. It specializes in travel to specific places and make sure that, like, people have all of their checkups before they go to – uh, African countries or, you know, some sort of jungle type space so that they make sure that like, hey, these kinds of diseases that don't really occur in the U.S., we want to make sure that you're safe and protected from whenever you go abroad. And so, yes, there are specific things that like we do want to check for, but also uh, mental disorders, like, again, Super vague, but it's like if you're depressed, you can't migrate to the U.S. If you uh, if you drink a glass of wine every day, does that count as alcohol abuse? Does that make someone inadmissible to come to the U.S.? It's rather, you know, vague and it's very, uh, you know, it when you see it sort of legal policy, which, uh, you know, is ac that that quote in a legal context is actu an actual thing that a su Supreme Court justice said. So that's dope. Uh, <laughs> not about the medical exam. It, it was about porn. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so like, okay, so all of these things about the immigration system and like, yeah, it was more specifically just talking about that medical exam thing. But like they also have us check for like an affidavit of support, which makes sure that like, oh, you can't come into the country if you're going to be like a weight on our welfare system, uh, which, okay, I guess, but also like there's millions of people in the U.S. that want to be on the welfare system and aren't for many convoluted reasons as well. So it's like for us to have to provide like $2,500 for 
all of these forms and tests and stuff, I think will manage. <laughs> yeah. And another thing to note is that a lot of immigrants will not um, seek social service resources because of document status um, and also just the fear of being deported because um, some places may ask for your document status um, and the fear of being deported that is really real. Uh, I don't, I can't confirm or deny that it's happened before because I'm, I don't know, but you know, it's a thing, anything having to do with government or system. I think most people um, who are immigrant status would not go to go towards to. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is actually a, a remnant of it in myself in the having lived without any sort of like health insurance for a long time. Like, even though I have health insurance through my wife, I actually like am still averse to like any medical anything because it's like, uh, they're going to like figure me out or something. <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's not, uh, I have medical <laughs> insurance, but I'm still like averse to like doing those things because of that, you know, immigration trauma. <laughs> um, but anyways, so like thinking of ways and something that I said in the last podcast is that like what, what happened to me is like, I'm very lucky to have the support system that I have. And so the, what they put me through would have made anyone else become a criminal. <laughs> That's like the most blunt way I can put it. Anyone else would have just turned to crime. And the going back to kind of the story of your family is that whenever people aren't presented with other options, they turn to crime. We have been looking for ways to do this thing legally. We have been looking for ways to... Uh, make money so that we can pay for things to do things legally. But like, it's almost as though the system is encouraging us to break the law. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, yeah, in, in the way that like you mentioned your grandma, like she keeps trying to do the legal route and like they keep denying it or it like costs an exorbitant amount of money. And so of course, like you said, you have a higher probability of getting into the country and being with your family if you go through these coyotes. And like, yeah, it sucks. And they will extort people and you'll go through terrible abuse and you have to fucking walk through the desert. But like, hey, at least I'm in as opposed to being stuck back here where, you know, literally walking next to dead bodies every day. And so the, the options that were given aren't great. And so it's like, uh, Hey, I would like to not live in this country anymore. And also I have some family that lives in that country over there. So is there some way that I could, you know, make that work? And the system goes, do you have this amount of money? Are you a fucking genius? Uh, are you a athletic miracle? Because, you know, we'll, we'll grant green cards to those people as well. Um, 
is there a U.S. corporation that wants to have your labor specifically uh, only after checking other job listings and like making sure that an American citizen can't fill this position? Uh, that's actually one of the things that like a company has to do. They can't just hire someone who they want to work for them that wants to obtain a green card. They actually have to like before hiring this person, they have to check and like basically put out a job listing like normal. And if someone else takes the job, then they will deny a immigrant a green card. <laughs> So, yeah, these are ways in which, like, the system is egging people on to do crime. Yeah, and <laughs> I, that reminded me, my mom. So my mom brought my brother when he was, like, a kid. And on the application is, did you bring another person against their will? Okay, uh, that's not the specific question, but it's something along those lines. And... She obviously had to say yes because she brought my brother and he was filing at the same time. And that is a crime. That's a severe crime because it's human trafficking according to the application. And there is a real possibility that um, she would have to like go present in court and ask for pardon. They never really told us if that would include like fees or anything or like what other ways that would look like at the time um but that's i think about that a lot <laughs> yeah and i think even in my uh interview uh, the the guy like went through that that weird list in the middle of that form that's like have you com uh, have you committed an act of terrorism and it's like look at me dude <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like <laughs> yeah one of the questions was like have you worked in the U.S. illegally? And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he's like, well, you put in this form. No, I was like, well, I worked with my dad for a bit. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like when you're interfacing with a human being, they're easy and willing to be like, oh, no, like, that's not what we're talking about here <laughs> but like you know they give you this list of things that you have to say no to unless they you're trying to be honest on a government forum and it's like have you ever committed any crime ever even without your knowledge and it's like yeah fucking everyone <laughs> <laughs> you've probably gone at least one mile an hour over the speed limit but like you know i'm still not gonna say yes on that form <laughs> Yeah, the questions are like, have you ever used a bathroom? And it's like, who hasn't used the bathroom? Come on. Mm, that's suspicious. Hitler drinks water. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Hitler drinks water. <laughs> oh, no. But well, like, he doesn't know because he's dead. Well, sure. Hitler, uh, well, I don't know. I'm sure his corpse probably has some sort of, like, absorbs some sort of liquids in the ground or whatever. Anyways, uh, <laughs> what? would be some ways in which because so earlier I mentioned that if millions of people tried to migrate into Canada it would be a very difficult way to try to process all of those people and all that sort of so like how do we deal with 
the fact that people are just trying to come here legally. And the question then becomes like, can the system handle this many people coming in? And I think, I think just right on face value. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have the money to like solve homelessness too. There is countries who have solved homelessness to a great extent. And we are like one of the richest countries. We have every resource to do it, but we're just choosing not to do it. And I mean, to answer your question too, I know you're not looking for an answer and it, this isn't like a plan on how to fix a problem, but a lot of it just comes down to U.S. sanctions. Uh, like a lot of people argue that communism doesn't work. And I think a more fair statement would be communism doesn't work because you will be sanctioned by the U.S. at some point. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, you know, take a, a nice long look and research U.S. and CIA, FBI affairs in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, yes, it's <laughs> appalling. I remember reading about it and be like, this is not true. And then I was like, this is very true. And I was like, this makes a lot of sense. Actually. Yeah. And if we can actually look at, you know, the state of foreign affairs of basically the rest of the world and go like, oh, did the U.S. have some hand in, you know, implementing some sort of insurrection or propping up a dictatorship or propping up uh, some sort of rebellion or some sort of assassination. Or <laughs> and uh, it seems as though, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I laugh because I can't bear the pain of all of this. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, just fucking Central and South America and just the state that they are all in is in part due to U.S. policy from the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. <laughs> so we can't say that like, oh, well, you know, why are these people from these shithole countries coming into here? Uh, like, well, maybe we should ask the question, why are they shithole countries? Why are the places that they're in so inhospitable and so uninhabitable that they have to move to someplace and make the impossible decision to, you know, either risk death in their home country or at least risk being illegal in the U.S.? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got some documentaries I think you'd like. One's about Cuba, one's about Palestine, and the other one's, I can't remember what the other one's about, but I think you'd like them. Uh, remind me to send those to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, other of a fun phrase that keeps getting tossed around nowadays in a less than favorable context is uh, do your own research. Well, you know, here's, here's some topics to research if you want. Uh, <laughs> the system quote unquote, can't handle this many immigrants, although they are already here. There's so many undocumented and illegal people in the U.S. right now who are trying so hard to do things, quote unquote, the right way. And the system is not letting us. And so the like the people are already here. They're already working. They're already like the food that you have put in your mouth today was 
touched by an illegal immigrant. I'm almost certain of it. <laughs> so, like, everything, you know, the, the whole system runs on undocumented workers. That's, you know, the immigrants taking your jobs are us, but also maybe you should take a look at the corporations that are the ones that are willing to hire those undocumented workers instead of pay an American person to do it. Mind you, that immigrants are also taking the low-paying jobs, which happen to be like those cook jobs, um, um, mainly kitchen jobs because nobody wants to work in the kitchen. Uh, but when you're an immigrant, your your job options are very limited. Um, so you'll take what you can get. Right. It will also farm labor, uh, working out in the fields, uh, working in slaughterhouses, working in like doing all the stuff that like- In a hundred degree weather. Yeah. That white people are like, oh, I could never do that. Uh, yeah. Construction, road. Yeah. Your, your nice shining bright pool in your nice ritzy backyard was probably built by an, an illegal immigrant who is- trying their best to work. Wait, Santiago, didn't you work in pools too? At the time, I was not an illegal immigrant. I retract my statement. <laughs> but no, yeah, my dad has done, oh my gosh, he's done everything. He's done construction. He's done like truck trailer stuff that nobody wants to do because it's a lot of heavy lifting. Um, yeah, yeah, my yeah. My parents have done like every stereotypical immigrant job that you can think of. Yeah. My mom still cleans houses. Yeah, I have a. Uh, we're living with a family member who. That's what she's been doing too. The stereotypes kind of exist for a reason. If you need your house cleaned, you know who to hit up. Yeah, right. Uh, I know how to clean a house very well because I also spent many years in my youth assisting my mom cleaning houses. So, like, yeah. <laughs> I did too. That's crazy. I say that's crazy as a, it's as a stereotype. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, we're literally breaking our bodies trying to live here and do things the right way and, like, just fucking pay taxes. Like, we're paying taxes anyways, <laughs> uh, but we're not, like, going to receive any of the benefit of it. So, like, all of these illegal immigrants are paying taxes in the form of sales tax or, uh, you know, employers are probably also still withholding it because they're like wanting to count their like how many employees they actually have while still never actually giving the benefits to those undocumented workers. So like all this shit, you know, all of this pay is coming out of how much they get paid and goes directly into the system, but never comes back to us. Also, there's a there's this thing going on that uh, for some reason right now there seems to be a a worker shortage that uh, for some reason people don't want to work because they realize that getting unemployment checks during a pandemic was far more profitable to them than actually working a terrible job that pays them shitty uh, rates. If only there were some population of people that actually did want to work and are trying their best to work and will even put themselves in harm's way like you know in harm's way is an example like a COVID-19 perhaps a Delta variant yeah uh but these people are you know willing to work 
maybe if there were some way for these people to get hired and go through some sort of legal immigration system that would allow them to be hired, then there wouldn't be as much of a worker shortage. <laughs> what I also like to clarify, though, a lot of immigrants don't have a choice to not work because we aren't able to get, I say we, I'm not an immigrant, but um, immigrants aren't able to get like benefits and they aren't able to apply for things um, out of reasons that we talked about earlier, why people don't do taxes um, or may not do taxes or uh, may not seek services. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been the biggest thing too. And it's a huge reason why um, black and brown communities are at higher risk because we're working those jobs um, because we also, we're working those jobs because those are the jobs that we are, that are available to us and also just the quote unquote unskilled labor that goes into it. And also, um, we don't have other options or we have very little options. The difference then is that like we have a problem that we're looking at right now and we have a potential solution to that problem. Like, hey, look, no workers, but actually, hey, workers <laughs> that are trying their best to be legit. If there were some way for the system to change and allow these people to be legit, make it easier for them to be legit, then like, because we don't want to turn to crime. We don't want to work illegally. We don't want to be under the radar. We want to do like, we just want to fucking live. <laughs> that, you know, that even brings up the bigger scope of like, why are some of these even considered crimes, you know? Mm hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, like, as I mentioned before, uh, weed is legal in some states anyways. But if you are filing for a green card, you it's it's not legal in the U.S., basically. <laughs> so why is marijuana illegal and treated as a schedule one type drug? and enforced so harshly when people are doing it recreationally in many places in the U.S. So, uh, and we haven't even touched on jails and incarceration because that's, yeah, that's the other big can of worms in that there's tons of immigrants in jail that um, also just want to do things legit or people who have just been tossed around by the system that are somewhere in between. And yeah, I mean, so, I mean, let's not pretend that crime isn't a thing. Obviously it is, but systemically we have to analyze the reasons why people commit crimes. And if there is an incentive to commit a crime versus an incentive to not commit a crime, then we want to make systemic ways in which it's easier for someone to not commit a crime and therefore not be an additional person in the uh, gigantic monolith that is the prison system. But yeah, I, I guess that's a that's a conversation for a different podcast probably <laughs> this has been like an hour of just like fuck the u.s <laughs> at least for me <laughs> the thing is is that 
So I recently went to Mount Rushmore with my parents-in-law. The thing about Mount Rushmore is that it is a monument to people that have done immense things, and they are complicated. They're complicated people who did complicated things, had complicated lives, and they did some good things and some not good things and some things that were considered good in the time that they lived in and are no longer considered good by today's moral standards. I think of the U.S. in that way. The U.S. isn't all good or all bad. There are good things about it, like the fact that I have lots of friends here and I'm married to an American. My whole life has taken place here. And so I'm, I'm not willing to say that like everything about the U.S. is bad and I hate it because that's just plainly not true. But it's complicated and there are some good things and some bad things and every person, every country, every everything has some shades of light and dark. And like we were mentioning earlier, everything is kind of a spectrum. And so there are aspects of the U.S. that I like very much and there are aspects of the U.S. that have been detrimental to my life. <laughs> and unfortunately, I can't have all of it and it all be good. But I'm here and I have to make the best of it. <laughs> Any final thoughts on your end? <laughs> no. <laughs> I stand by my statement. <laughs> um, yeah, well... Thank you so much, Steph, for doing this with me, for sharing your story, and hopefully other people get to empathize with you and your experience and our experience, and maybe we can, you know, have more people do some sort of research into the topics that we have discussed. Where can we find you and your things and support you and your things? I don't exist anywhere. <laughs> I no longer exist on any social media platform. Well, where can we support the things that you advocate then? That's a good question. You know, there's, um, since we're speaking about immigrants, there's a, um, I am rich now. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm making pretty decent money at the current job I'm working. Um, and I'm able to allot some of it out to um, organizations that I support. And there's two that I've been able to donate to every month. Um, and I'm so grateful that I've been able to do it. And one of them is a book club slash space in Los Angeles called All Powers Book Club. It's basically like a not strictly commie or socialist, but um, like it's not just communist and socialist, but it's um, predominantly communist and socialist um, event space where they hold like documentaries, um, information sessions, uh, mutual aid events and stuff like that um, in Los Angeles. And you can find them on Instagram as I think it's All Powers, All Powers Book Club. I'll, I'll give you the handle. And then there's another one that I have so much respect for. Basically, they're um, 
They're like a shelter for refugees, um, specifically at the border of Mexico and Los Angeles. And they take in immigrants um, and assist them with medical needs and shelter needs, food needs, um, educational needs and stuff like that. While also um, every now and then, I don't know how often they go out to do this, but they go into the desert and leave like food packs and water for people in the area. And they are called Border Kindness. And they are also based in California. So a lot of these, a lot of the companies that I follow are based in California because that's a high percentage of immigrants um, that stay in California and also just coming into the United States because it's close to the border. And I will give you links to those too. Those are the two big ones that I've been following a lot of the work that they do. And I'm always extremely touched by all the work that they do. Yeah. Uh, I'm... Not under duress, but I should say that I have no allegiance or loyalty to any sort of uh, organization that uh, promotes or supports uh, socialism or communism in any way. There's some reason why I'm saying those words out of my mouth. (laughs) Totally fine. You don't have to be a communist or socialist to support people doing well. I would just like to say that for anyone who who needs to hear that. (laughs) <laughs> but I specifically, Santiago Ramones, <laughs> have no loyalty to really any organization whatsoever. Uh, but also in this specific context, uh, a socialist or a communistic type organization. For some reason, I'm saying those words out of my mouth. I should also probably be saying those things out of my mouth. But to be fair, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Steph, thank you so much for doing this with me and doing this little, like, I guess, emergency podcast so that I have something to post on Thursday, but uh, also just uh, so that we can rant about the things that we're upset about. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I'm always upset at something, so feel free to hit me up. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much. I'm Santiago Ramones. And I'm Stephanie. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music and produce audio. I have an EP, a short album, that is streaming everywhere right now. It's called Soundbites. The music you're hearing right now is from Soundbites. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else you stream music, or buy it on Bandcamp, because a single purchase is the monetary equivalent of streaming it all day, every day, for a year. I'm also working on another album, so if you'd like to hear that at some point, you can buy my music, or you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Santiago Ramones. Follow me on Instagram to stay up to date with all the stuff that I'm doing, both at bit.depth and at Santiago Ramones Music. There's also a Discord server in which we discuss deep topics from the podcast, but it's also a community of beautiful human beings. Go to santiagoramones.com slash Discord to join. If you like the podcast, leave comments on social media Leave reviews by saying how much you like the podcast and tell your friends about it. I really couldn't be doing this without you, and I am so very grateful to continue doing BitDepth for this long. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting BitDepth. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.